Hi there, my name is Laura and I'm the back half of Stella Tandem, a record-breaking attempt to cycle it around the world in 2022. And this is Stoke to Be Here, a podcast where I'm speaking to different people from the worlds of cycling and endurance to get lots of tips and tricks for our big trip. Um, and today I'm joined by Lee Timmis, who's not only cycled around the world, but is also a, a Guinness World Record holder for, for cycling across Europe. So um, got fantastic experience to, to give us some advice. Hi, Lee, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well as well. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I didn't realise that it was called, oh, stoked to be here. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant great I, let's have a whole podcast full of puns <laughs> <laughs> if you can keep that up i'll be really impressed <laughs> no no i don't i think that we've peaked already so, uh, that was it she was laura i was lee thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs> you're not getting away with it that easily <laughs> okay i'll try and slip some puns in then but I, it's gonna take all my brain power like, oh. that's my, my focus now let's we'll just skim across the cycling stuff you know, we all know that, but what's yeah. the best cycling pun that you can, come, can up come up with? We'll see. We'll see how we go. We'll see if we can right. keep a tally by the end. But anyway, so yeah, you've you've had some massive achievements on the bicycle, but I always like to ask, first of all, were you always a cyclist? Was this like always your thing? Or were you one of these people that came to it later in life and it, it kind of revolutionised everything for you? And yeah, how did it no, all come it about? Always, it was always the thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I've got photos of me as a kid um, on this little little bunny bike. It's like, um, I guess it's a, they're called balance bikes now, but mine had a picture of a bunny on the front of it. Um, <laughs> back in the days before colour, it's a black and white photo. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I've always got memories of being a kid on a bike. I've got all the scars on my head to prove it from the times yeah. that I cycled in the garage doors and like... Um, <laughs> Oh, the best one is the uh, pebble dash wall. That really leaves a mark. Um, yeah, so all of that. And then kind of, I guess, um, school age, I really got into bikes. So grew up on a building site. My dad um, built our house when we were a kid um, on a self-build scheme. And I remember taking bits of wood and bricks and making little jumps around then on my little BMX. Then um, I think that the bike in many ways became an escape um, through kind of growing up. Um, my parents divorced and I'm sure that uh, in many ways like it was a way of getting away from that. Um, the bike can be quite a, an interesting escape for people, you know, you get that. Even as adults now, I think we just get that moment outside of responsibility and work and pressure you just get that time on the bike to ride at your own pace doing your own thing you know going where you want to go you're in control for for some time aren't you and I think that that was important as a child um so after school oh, I got into mountain bikes actually at school I think mountain bikes were this new kind of thing I'm gonna just ramble on for a bit now Laura <laughs> no 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 <laughs> you can't no um, I've gotten so yeah after like just the bikes that you kind of given as, uh, as a kid, I got into mountain bikes properly on this day at secondary school when um, all the students could bring in a piece of sports equipment, all the, and the teachers did as well. And so they were like, 
I don't know, England, signed England shirts up on the wall and there was like people with their favourite cricket bat or tennis rackets and stuff like that. And on the balcony, um, there was a bunch of bikes and there was this carbon fibre cross-country mountain bike. It just like captured my imagination. I loved like mechanics and clicking stuff and, and all of that. And this bike, like, it was something that I'd never seen before and I wanted to get into it. I guess at that age, you know, early teens, probably wanted to get into cars as well and the bike was the closest thing. Yeah. So had a paper round, just saved and saved and got my first mountain bike. And with that, I started, uh, me and three or four friends got into bikes around the same time and I had this kind of laid back, like it was almost like a surf kind of atmosphere about it. Like mountain biking was new and it was laid back. It come from California and like these dudes with long hair were, were doing it. I went to my mate's house, five miles across town every day through the summer and we'd learn tricks in the woods and like get up to mischief on a ride back um and we just used to go further and further just pushing our luck um yeah. so living in derby uh we'd get a train up to the peak district and like go off like felt like you're off today is just with like a jam sandwich and i don't know how we survived like now that you'd be like <laughs> riding past the cliffs and under the climbers and the paragliders and there's sailing and there's a rock like downhill descent and then you go on some roads and like yeah that was growing up um, and then I started competing in mountain biking at university, but um, then I dropped bikes. I left them completely. And I think that this was an important change for me. It was a, a, big, uh, a big chapter in my life that, that led me back into bikes in a big way. When um, at university, everyone, well, I think all the way through life maybe nowadays, but certainly at university, I felt like there was an a great urge for success like you go to uni you pay a lot of money and you're kind of pushed towards being successful on the way out yeah. so in the last year of uni I, I i neglected cycling actually the bike became i'm sure there's a lot of people who would um, empathize or sympathize with this the bike became a very expensive clothes horse <laughs> <laughs> and so like there was just permanently like laundry drying on it I've, I've seen it happen <laughs> yeah laundry horse um until one day I was living in Newcastle um uh in, in the cheapest area you could possibly live in and one day came home from the night out and the bike was stolen and uh oh, no. yeah that was it that was the end of cycling for a year or two then didn't bother to replace it I was like oh you know it's taken my time away from being successful worked hard to get first class degree in filmmaking became a self-employed filmmaker and just worked and worked and worked at a time when i think i neglected a lot of important things my friends had all moved away i lived three hours away from my folks mm. i wasn't doing anything that i was particularly into i was just like being successful earning the money earning the respects like doing all the things that you're supposed to um to be a great human being yeah. and it just took a massive toll on my life ended up um, struggling with my mental health, depression, um, went to counselling. And I think I was looking for like that silver bullet answer. Yeah. Like, you know, if I explain my problems to you, you'll come back to me and say, Harley, just do this and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> um, but it wasn't like that. You had to look deep within yourself. You had to do the homework that they gave you. You had to like put in the hard work to fix or, or to acknowledge yourself and become self-aware and put interventions in place and I just didn't didn't have the courage to do it I don't think when I was young in my early 20s um, and 
but okay, so at that point, there was this one catalyst that changed a lot of stuff. And that was just this opportunity to go to Iceland on a motorbike. Boom, amazing. Like from going from this, uh, I, was, I was doing animation, um, facilitating workshops and animating on my own. So you spend a lot of time in a small, like yeah. dark studio and suddenly you're out in Iceland riding a motorbike across volcanic deserts, camping under volcanoes, swimming in rivers of hot water, sleeping under the midnight sun. You're like, what that's insane like I, like living in the pages of national geographic or something and for me i never thought that that was a world that was accessible to me like you had to be born an adventurer you had to have some kind of lineage like i don't know how you become an adventurer is it like the royal family you're just born into that like where does it come from and that suddenly happened to me and i realized there was a whole amazing world out there for me um i ended up Six weeks later, I was living in New Zealand. I just stopped what I was doing and decided I was going to go backpacking. I was going to be a snowboarder, actually. Oh, wow. Travel the world, party snowboarding, yeah. Until I realised, like, I learned how to snowboard very badly, fell off, broke my collarbone, and that was the end. <laughs> but <laughs> but realised that I loved travel and I yeah. liked meeting people. And, and then through the course of travelling... I remembered that love of cycling as well. And I started to have these wild dreams of like the great adventure. What would be the one thing that you could do with your life if you've got one opportunity? And it was the bike and it was travel and it all fitted together. Um, so I came back after a couple of years of backpacking with this plan to ride a bike around the world. And that's where it all started from. So <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I was always into bikes, but I have a strange, relationship with them yeah it was passionate and then it was off and then it was revived later on no that's amazing yeah and it's it's that idea of that you know if you've got one opportunity what you you're going to do with it and i think um i think for us one of the um the points turning points for us was the coronavirus you know it's being so restricted all of a sudden it made us think well if we don't do it as soon as we can whenever will we do it so I think you know you've got to you got to make the most of the opportunities you get don't you definitely yeah I think this year of um, relative isolation and lack of opportunities has made a lot of people consider what they want in life and you know maybe whether they are in a position that they want to be in and if not what would you do I think it's a really great opportunity one thing that I realized from the round the world trip which was not in any way a fast trip at all it was seven years um was the times when I, I took time out like just to punctuate it not intentionally I ran out of money a couple of times but it gave me an opportunity to sit back and when I started earning money so first time I was in Australia I stayed for six months in Perth and I had a great opportunity I ended up managing a really cool bar on a really cool area of town working with people who respected me I respected them we had a great work life but then we partied hard outside of it had a great girlfriend like and a, just a great lifestyle imagine like living on on the beaches in Perth going <laughs> like working in a bar and diving into swimming pools after work and under the midnight stars and like oh. it was amazing but I was still called back to the road I I was willing to give that up to continue the journey around the world. Yeah. And so I knew I loved what I was doing. I was 100% passionate about it. I was motivated. There were things that I wanted to see, experiences that I wanted to live. Um, and I think, I feel like 
the coronavirus is almost one of those punctuations that it's not been a choice, it's been forced upon us, but it has given us a great opportunity to reflect on who we are, where we're at and where we want to go. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like, you, you know, this was the first time you've ever travelled like that on a bike. Um, I mean, it's one thing going out to the Peak District for a day to go around the world for seven years is, is a whole different skill set. How prepared were you when you set out? Did you did you do a lot of preparation or did you just get on the bike and blag it? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my first time, actually. The first time was that year when I moved to New Zealand, I met a girl, we lived in Auckland together in the, in the North Island and we both wanted to go and live in the South Island. And we thought, what better way of, of going like between these two islands than to do it on a tandem? Brilliant. So we packed <laughs> all our stuff, we hired a great tandem and off we set. And for the first um, 10 days, two weeks, we cruised down through um, the North Island, stopping off to do various bits and pieces, uh, a skydive, go and see some uh, glow worms in caves, that kind of stuff. And gradually, uh, we, you know, you, you spend every second together. You don't ever get away from each other and any little things that are slightly <laughs> wrong in the relationship start to fall apart. And by the time we got to the bottom of the South Island, we'd had enough of each other. Um, <laughs> and we were stuck, like, I don't want to go out with you anymore. Or I don't want to go out with you anymore. Well, what the hell are we going to do? We're stuck at the top of this climb. We've only got, we've got all our things on this stupid bike. We can't go separate ways. <laughs> that's my, that's, yeah, that was my I, I do appreciate this is a risk. <laughs> <laughs> There's no hints, no lessons in my story. Nothing <laughs> I would like to impose upon you. This is just, <laughs> just your experience. <laughs> um yeah and so yeah that was the first bike tour that I ever went on and it yeah it ended very well my gran always laughs when she thinks about it about these two people just stuck like well what are you gonna do do you want to take the front wheel I'll take the back like yeah yeah uh, so I ended up ditching the bike and we got trains down there um then years what happened next with bike touring you know, I don't think there was any other experience until I made this decision to go around the world um, and strangely had every confidence in myself to do it. Um, mm. when, I, when I set off, I never said to anyone, well, I said to people in the UK that I was going to do it. And then I just made small challenges for myself. Like, okay, we'll take this. The first step will be getting to Istanbul. I'm cycling to Istanbul. That's yeah. what we'll say. And off we go. Um, and then... And it was Iran and then it was China and then you get to a point where you're like well I've kind of gone so far now I might as well tell people <laughs> I'm, <not getting laughs> it, I'm cycling around the world now um and so before that preparation um was I earned a lot of money when I was traveling working in bars um, in the states in, in Canada came back with um, almost enough but I then worked at home for a year lived with mum, I think it's a story that a lot of adventures would tell, moved back in with mum, saved all the money that I could. Yeah. Um, and then I took the last three months before I left, I stopped working and started to try and pull a bit of sponsorship together, pull my ideas together, get an idea of the visas that I would need, um, the kind of places that I wanted to go to, the obstacles that stood in the way, the equipment that I needed to take, um, and kind of pulled all that together. Uh, probably realized at that point that my sponsorship dreams were a bit unrealistic and ended up self-funding much more than I expected. And years later, I would realize that actually that 
brought me a lot more freedom. I didn't have to stand on top of mountains wearing somebody's branded t-shirt or have to commit to write an X amount of blogs every month. Like it was just my journey to do what I wanted with, which I still think is very, it's a very beautiful thing to do. Um, and I did do a test ride. I cycled um, like a bit of a loop from Derby up to Scotland, across down through the lakes and back from Manchester kind of thing. I think it was about three or four days yeah. just to test the bike and the equipment. And uh, I think in my head, I was like, right, well, that's that then. I've uh, <laughs> proved I can do that. I'll just do the world next. <laughs> well, I think that's more than, than some have done before they, they've leapt on the bike and, and disappeared off into the sunset. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also kind of made the bike myself. Um, I bought all the components and so that was one part of it. I think from those childhood memories that I was talking about, I like the clicky stuff, I like mm. the mechanical side of the bike, that's what originally got me into it. Um, and so to build it, yeah, start to build that personal relationship as well, like you invested in that, it's not, I think, you know, everyone gets their own kicks from it all and I love what that bike brought for me, but I also like the connection of it as well, like I like to have been a part of the production of the bike that got me around the world and yeah, yeah. had that yeah the connection to the whole thing yeah and Steve's like that as well he can spend hours tinkering with with bikes but it's you know it's not only you know useful but it, it means if you know your bike inside out you you're going to be much better at fixing it along the way aren't you so it makes a big difference I think that this was a big thing that the world changed for me as well actually I left very much into like before I left I had like a carbon fiber mountain bike. Everything was top of the range. I'd spend a fortune on it. It was all about making sure that bike was clean, making sure that I was going as fast as possible, making sure that my hair was right. Everything was very perfect, perfect in every way. Yeah. Um, and then the world made me realize that it's just a tool. Like, <laughs> I can't believe that that bike that I invested so much time, money, effort into it was in such a state like the chain would be so stretched it was covered in dirt the whole time that I rode it I didn't care like I just <laughs> neglected it because it became the tool that invited me into people's homes like yeah that's just doing its job it's fine it doesn't need to be perfect and maybe this is a great metaphor for life it doesn't it never is perfect nothing ever is yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the experiences that it buys you along the way that's what became really important and that was the tool that the bike became yeah it's, I guess yeah you wouldn't care if you had a really fancy key like you wouldn't go around making sure your key was perfect but that's what it became it was just this key that opened the doors yeah no it was a good metaphor but... yeah I <laughs> uh, mixed all the metaphors up and I've, I've still not got a single pun in for this <laughs> oh there's still time <laughs> um and then yes so for seven years you must have had you know enough time to really kind of um get to know places to see things i know there's always always more to see but what were kind of the the, the highlights as it were with you know what places that really kind of stood out um that you passed through um it's a really difficult question <laughs> i thought when i left I really felt that I was going to miss out on the world um, because I traveled on such a small budget. It was like five pounds a day, which doesn't get you anything. Living back in Derby now, and I mean, Derby's very cheap compared to London, but yeah. what does five pounds even get you? A couple of coffees? That's like, if you're lucky. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, 
So I thought I was going to travel the world and I'd miss out on all the culture, on everything, because I wouldn't see the galleries or the museums or the music festivals. Um, and I slowly started to realise that I didn't need to. Like, I didn't need to see the, the famous painter's interpretation of where they were because I was seeing the real thing. Like, I, um, I saw the world through the small town markets and the, um, the, the people picking cotton who invited me to stay in their small mud huts in the middle of nowhere. And like, that was real life. Um, it was a much different experience to what I thought I would find in the world. But because of that, I realized that the world, you know, when we look at a globe or a map, we see that it's separated into all these colored shapes divided by black lines. And, you know, in this country, there's the Taj Mahal, and in that country, there's the Great Wall of China, and they're very different, and you go and see them for these specific reasons. But actually, on a grassroots level, we're just all human beings with the very, very similar motivations, very similar needs or desires. Um, and it was lovely to see that played out in so many different cultures and traditions and languages and religions, but all kind of aiming for the same thing. So, so in many ways, um, everywhere was the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And beautiful with it. Like yeah. that bike invited me into the most intimate experiences with families in every country that I visited, 51 countries. There wasn't a single country that I wasn't invited to stay in a random person's house and to experience their life. What what an absolute gift. It was so lovely. And to realize that we're this network of human beings that span a whole planet. And when everyone's helping each other, you can do the most incredible things like ride a push bike around a planet. That's insane. It wasn't because of what I was doing. It was because I was helped by so many people along the way. So in that respect, everywhere was very similar. Um, but I think, you know, those, those experiences with people were separated by these experiences in enormous landscapes, like yeah. crossing Tibet or crossing the desert or sailing an ocean where you realize the opposite end of the scale, you're tiny. And every moment in those situations does rely on you. Like when you're in the middle of nowhere and something goes wrong, it depends on your, your tools, how you prepared yourself, your skills um, and your knowledge to get yourself out of that situation. And for me, I think they're the ones that stick in your minds. Like they're the landscapes where you're at 5,000 meters on a bike in the snow and you're, you're praying that you don't get a punch in those. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think the overriding feel was just that the world every day can be so similar yet so surprising. Um, I wouldn't say that there was a single highlight in it. Yeah because every day you do get the same experiences, but they're so wildly individual as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do see what you mean. It's, yeah, it's, and it's, it's that concept of, uh, as well of, yeah, if you are, you know, trying to fix a puncture in a blizzard on top of a high pass somewhere, it suddenly puts everything into sharp perspective from, you know, sat on doing an office job at home if you're worried about a deadline it, it's um it's very different isn't it to find oh, yeah. survival <laughs> yeah it really does put um it puts a lot into perspective but it's also a lesson that i that i learned you know when you're out in, in the most extreme environments and something goes wrong or you're wondering where you're going to get water from how are you going to find food when there's no towns for the next four days like 
you really realize what's important in the world and you start to wonder why did you even care why did you spend half an hour in those mornings doing your hair because you were trying to impress somebody in an office who didn't even think about you like <laughs> that kind of stuff puts puts a lot of that in perspective but then when I came back from cycling around the world I think that when I left I expected to um you know, you look at people who have done these amazing things, sailed oceans, climbed the highest mountains, cycled around the world. You think, wow, with, with that level of like resilience and tenacity, with that bravery, with that spirit of adventure, how could normal everyday stuff ever phase them? And I think for me, that was a big essence of why I went. Looking back retrospectively, mm. um, I would never have said it at the time, but I, I think that I hoped when I came back I'd never be faced by those normal things and then you come back and you're faced with financial problems and responsibilities and relationships and you realize well I realized that I handled it all in exactly the same way um and that if you want to resolve that you have to look inside yourself you know I think I think that for me travel was like the greatest escape um, yeah yeah and then I ended up coming back and had to deal with it. All <laughs> deal with again, it. You know? yeah. <laughs> but for me as well, that was kind of that was a lot of the lessons in um, in the world record as well. Working with a team of experts, where we they were their approach was no compromise. My approach was no compromise. Actually, to both, I would say around the world, it was no compromise. Like investment in my happiness and finding what I wanted to see in the world. And that's why it took so long and it meandered in this wild shape of the, the route that I took. Because um, every, yeah, every decision was based on where, how I'd be happy. If it was cold, you go somewhere warm. If it was lonely, go and find and meet, see, meet some people. Discover what there is out there. It's very external to me. Um, the world record was the opposite. It was no compromise on performance. Like It didn't matter if I was passing to the most beautiful place in the world. It was head down, you're gunning it. Um, and in order to find that ultimate performance, I worked with a physiologist, a psychologist, nutritionist, and a physiotherapist. And in every area of that, there was like this no stone left unturned approach. And so I had to face all of those, I guess the mental health problems that I had, like I had to be overcome. The way that I reacted in crisis situations, you had to deal with that in a positive way and get through it. We had to know that everything that was going to come up on the road, mm -hmm. we had an intervention in place ready to hit it. Like we, around the world was very much about, you put yourself out there, whatever happens, you deal with it along the way. And it's part of the adventure. It was the opposite case for the world record. It was, these are the obstacles that are going to, you're going to be in the way and we need interventions in place to overcome them before they even get there. Yeah. And yeah, I could see the two trips are, are completely different ends of the spectrum and the scientific way you approach the, the record, you know, it, it becomes clear really quickly. What what made you make that switch? What made you go, right, I'm, you know, going to go all guns blazing into this and, and you know, go to that level to, to get the record? That was probably the next big shift. Like, I think the first big shift in my life was that um, that desire to step out of my comfort zone, that going around the world, like, instead of thinking, why do that? Why do this? It was, why not? And off you go and you do something amazing. The next change, I came back from around the world very much a chancer. Like, I would blag my way onto boats to sail across <laughs> oceans. I would 
find myself drunk in places that you never would want to be drunk with people that you don't know where they're going to take you. I would just blag my way through everything and somehow I came out the other end alive. But then that isn't the attitude that gets a world record. And it was my attitude when I saw the record. I was like, I saw what it stood at. Yeah. It was 29 days when I first looked at it. And I was like, well, I could do that. Like, I just, I just ride it. And, you know, I could probably knock a couple of hours off that. No problem. Um, <laughs> but I'd, I'd, a lot of my changes come down to one, one guy that I met um just through chance he cycled into Derby with me on the last day of going around the world and he ended up becoming a very influential figure in my life he was he's very much of a mentor to me um he showed me the best way of doing things um he'd he'd pushed himself through his life and became um he he'd owned three companies he just he he just sold one at that time I think for I don't know, millions, uh, did very well for himself. And his whole approach was no compromise. And so we were looking through the guidelines. I, I remember I found this world record when I was sitting on the sofa at his house, wondering what to do with my life next. You know, you've cycled around the world. What's next? What are you going to do with your life? Um, and I found it. It was this world record, 29 days. Bang, I can do that. I'll go out tomorrow. I'll just, you know, I'll fly out there now. I can get a bike. I'll do it. And he was like, OK, well, let's look at the guidelines. And we went through them and one by one, he was like, well, if you do it this way or this way, which one's going to get your best result? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it came down to, you can do it supported or unsupported. Mm. Which way are you going to get your best result? And I was like, well, yeah, okay, supported. But, you know, I don't need support because I could do it myself now. He's like, but which one will get your best result? Supported, okay. And then we went through all of these guidelines and on each one made the decision to get the best out of like whatever we could do. Um, and so it made everything much, much harder. Previously, I would never have done that because I kind of took the easy way out. I was that chancer. And it suddenly meant that instead of having, it, I think unsupported, it would have cost about 2000 pounds and a bike. Yeah. With a team, it would cost 50,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. And all the visas and all the flights and everything that has to come with it. Um, and with a, a team of scientific experts, it needed a year of preparation. It needed a strategy. It needed a commitment. I'm doing it on my own with two grand. I could do it, like go and do it next week. Suddenly everything in my life started to change. It started to be like regimental. It started to be focused. It was purposeful. Every decision that I made in the year leading up to the, the start line, the 10th of September, every decision I made was based on how do you make that bike go faster? It was like sacrificing work. It was sacrificing relationships. It was spending every minute working towards it, like total, no compromise, total commitment to it. Um, and it was changed by, uh, by Steve in that time. He just changed my way of looking at things. Um, and I guess that the reason I did it is because instead of looking at what I could do through life, I looked at what I wanted to do. Yeah. I think that's what clicked in me. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's quite easy in a lot of ways to meander through life. I, I think for a long time, I would have described myself as a leaf in the wind. And if the wind blew me that way, that's where I'd go. And then, you know, I'd, I'd go wherever the world took me. And it took me to some amazing places. I saw some great things, but then 
then I committed to something that I wanted to do, not something that I could do. I certainly couldn't have done the world record the way that I did it when I started. Needed support, needed a group of people around me um, who could influence and innovate new ideas and develop something together. And, and I took the way that other people saw the world and changed my own view of it as well, which is very similar to going around the world. But this was all about performance, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was a massive change. Like, I'm certainly not the same person that I was before I started that project. But I think it's a really interesting uh, journey, an interesting adventure. If around the world was all external, exploring what there is out there, the world record was internal. Like, what's in there? What can you do? And how do you do it? And it's fascinating. Yeah, human transformation is incredible. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, your story is, yeah, you know, really intriguing and being through your blogs and bits and bobs like that, it's, yeah, a, a very impressive, <laughs> you know, achievement. And uh, you broke the record and still hold the record, I believe, with 16 days, 10 hours and 45 minutes. So yeah. it was quite, um, you shaved quite a, a chunk off there as well didn't you which as as you say I think was only really possible through the support of having such a, a dedicated team as well and yeah if you'd gone about it supported it, unsupported it would have been a completely different kettle of fish so it is a an epic achievement um and obviously you've got a lot of different support with yeah from different areas of your team were there any bits and bobs that kind of stood out for you? Are there any big changes you made through, you know, feedback from, from those team of people that you think really did make a difference? Um, through any changes? Um, I think the biggest change was my whole approach to it. Um, I, there was a really interesting quote um, from the physiologist right at the beginning when I still I guess I was still changing I was still trying to see how this performance thing works like hey yeah no it's not me <laughs> um, uh, he uh, we were putting together a bit of strategy and uh, a way that the training would work out and you know painting that picture of the athlete in the lab and you've got the the uh, the mask on that's monitoring the uh, oxygen in and carbon dioxide out and your blood's uh, being sampled and, and the lactate, everything. Like, he's painting that picture. And as I explained that I thought I needed a coach, which was going to be him, and a uh, physio for massages and a nutritionist. And he said, well, who's your, who's your psychologist then? And I was like, why do I need a psychologist? I've got, I've got a mind that can get me around the world. I don't need that. And he was like, oh, okay, well... Um, he told me that you could be the fastest cyclist in the world on the start line, but it meant nothing if your mind wasn't strong enough to get you to the finish line. Yeah. And I think that was the crux of that project for me. I think that was really, really important. Um, that was a big change. And then otherwise, um, from the team angle of things, what I realised, I think this was a big change in myself um, from the early days, well, actually, let's draw a parallel to those days of um, mental health problems and anxiety and depression when my friends had moved away and my family weren't there 
and I neglected to make those relationships. I think that I was striving for that, that top pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that pursuit of um, like the greatest that you can be, self-actualization, to be yeah. everything that you're supposed to be in the world. Um, and I covered those base layers of the foundations of the pyramid, which are food, shelter, and um, security, and money, income. But those middle layers where you've got friends and um, self-esteem and family and so you know those comforts that I think make us humans were social creatures in those days I've neglected them for me one of the big things that got me through the record was realizing the importance of that um, to have a team of people behind me on the road who looking back they were there for me at every minute like on every break when we stopped, they would support me. They never showed me. Imagine living in the back of a motorhome with, with another two people, so there was three of them. They'd never really met each other before. And they spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 16 days wow. in the back of a motorhome. And any time that I saw them, they weren't like bickering about anything. They weren't showing me their own dynamics. It was just positivity. And it's how can we make this work faster for you? What can we do? And I think that that was a massive thing for me to, to have such an amazing support. And then um, the support from people back home as well, friends and family, when you've been riding, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day alone on a bike, it's very lonely it's, and it's really hard work. And you wonder why you're doing it and you wonder how you're gonna keep going. You've still got days left to go. You still see distances that are four digits long and you're exhausted and you don't want to eat anymore. You don't want to drink anymore. And, oh, it's all so difficult. Nobody understands what it's like for me out here and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get off the bike and you get messages from home and it's just people supporting you and they believe in you and you're giving them hope. Like you're one of them. I'm just a guy with a mum and a dad and a group of friends in Derby and we've all got our own quirks and we go to the same bars and we, we do the same kind of thing. And you realize that that's where you belong. Like that's, that's the group of people whose life you're impacting. And, and actually I've realized that you don't have to be breaking a world record or doing something outrageous. The action, every day your actions impact the people around you. And when you do something like this, when you go out and put yourself out there and you get a little bit of media spotlight and you achieve something that people think would be impossible, it does bring back, it adds value to your friend group. It adds something to their life as well because they're a part of your journey and you're a part of theirs. But it's not about the achievement. It's about like what you showed there is. It's that hope. It's that like belief that we are part of this. Um, and for me, yeah, that was a beautiful thing. You can have all of the technology in place, all of the science, all of this physio. You can have an answer to every question but I realized that without the support of those people backing it up, giving me those reasons to do it, like that, that identity of who I am and the gap that I fill in people's lives, when you get that, then you can make tech and the science and everything work. Like we're humans first and we're athletes second. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And when we've done a kind of our own little trips um, on the tandem or even kind of long distance walks and things like that, if, you know, so people come along for the ride if they're following our blog or us on Facebook and you occasionally get this, oh, just keep going or, oh, we've been watching you, you're almost there. And it, it makes all the difference. And I think that's one of the things we're kind of looking forward to the most is, you know, the way the world works now with social media, the internet and everything is to take people with us um not only because you say that support of others is you know is immensely helpful um but also it might inspire other people along the way too and i think that that could be a, a really kind of exciting thing that we might just give somebody else the impetus to go off on on their own adventures um have you had anybody that's kind of come back to you or, or kind of said oh you know i've heard about what you did and i've now gone off and and been inspired to do my own kind of trip or anything like that um yeah people do get in contact um i mean strangely i think that um maybe oh yeah a bit of both actually a bit of the people i was gonna say i was gonna say that more people contact me that i met around the world and just wonder what i'm doing now and where i am and stuff like that because a lot of the around the world trip was also without social media like you know, mm. i left in 2010 when the first iPhone was out. It was a weird time. It was like, I, don't, I wrote everything in a paper diary. It was a, a world before all of this media. And I, I really enjoy looking back on that. I'm almost kind of thinking that it was the last odyssey of those eras. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, I'm always surprised by people who have seen what I did on the world record as well. So I had a phone call uh, probably a month ago from a guy that I met when I was coming back from around the world. I was in Morocco. We sat and had one of those mint teas in the, I don't know, the town square of wherever it was. Oh, um, the best. <laughs> I know, it's just pure sugar, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we must have chatted and uh, I told him what I was up to. I was finishing my around the world cycle and, you know, stay in contact. And... I hadn't heard from him in three years and he phoned me the other day and he just wondered what I was up to and he told me that he'd since then cycled across Europe and he'd, he was planning another ride and he'd done something else and and that was kind of bounced off of maybe when you meet somebody who's already doing it it bounces the idea of like the confidence it, it's a bit yeah. contagious oh this guy's done all of that stuff well my my plan isn't so outrageous after all I'll just go and do it um so so yeah but it's rare People don't phone me every day, uh, <laughs> tell me that they've been on a great bike ride. Um, but then also, yeah, I meet people who saw what I did with the world record as well. And that's quite nice. One of the things that I realized is you never know who's watching. Always, like, even the moments when you think it's all for nothing, that nobody cares, keep giving it your best shot because you, you never believe who's watching you sometimes. And it doesn't have to be a superstar celebrity who gets in contact and goes, oh, I was dead inspired by what you did. It can be a child and you're speaking in a school and they're like, oh, I followed what you did then. And that really made, that I really wanted to be a ballerina and gave me the confidence to go out there and do that. And you're like, that's gold. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the yeah. things, they're the things that change people's lives. And, and I think that that's the best thing that we can offer. Some people don't have the same dreams, but you can inspire their confidence. And some people don't get the opportunity and they'd love to go on a, a tandem journey around the world. And they get to live that vicariously through you as well. Um, and if you always show, yeah, the best that you can, you share the best that you can, you won't believe, yeah, what other people get out of it. You may never know, but somebody will. Somebody's sitting there going, 
what those guys did ah oh, <laughs> I wish I, I wish I could do that or they changed my life yeah <laughs> yeah no I think it's it's definitely more about the the Joe blogs than you know celebrity celebrity figures and yeah to you know even you say if... that now, but when you're on the big screen with Johnny Depp and he's going <laughs> around with the <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah I wouldn't say no but yeah <laughs> you never know and talking of um celebrity figures um of course the the current world record for around the world is held by Mark Beaumont <laughs> um, not for long I heard that there's going to be a tandem record that's going to be <laughs> 70 days <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's all down to the stoker. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, here you go then, because obviously that was uh, almost similar to you. It was done in a very scientific way, but with a, a budget that I think would blow yours out of the water and then some. Um, <laughs> if you could have a team of, of that caliber and a budget of that level, would you go after it? It's an interesting question. You are not the first person who's asked. Oh, um, <laughs> um, you know, it can be beaten, it can be beaten, and you wouldn't need that budget. And I've got the team to do it. Um, the Mark's greatest asset is his logistical mind and his business mind. I love yeah. the way that he thinks his way out of a problem. Um, and that record is it's just years of preparation. When you get on the bike, you just know what you've got to do and you just plug it out. Um, yeah, and his mindset so is something else, isn't it? You know, he's, yeah, he, great he's in the zone for 78 days. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's not impossible to beat. The thing is, in a lot of ways, why would you? Yeah. Um, you know, he got the headline, didn't he? Around the world in 80 days, around the world in 75 days, doesn't have the same ring. No. Um, and also, what I've found is that nothing is nothing's ever about the achievement. You'll never get that feeling. I kind of almost wanted to be rescued by the finish line, I think, as a human being. I wanted to get to that finish line, like, now I deserve like to feel amazing. I, should, I deserve some kind of accolade. I'm an incredible human being. Like, and you don't get it. You just, you're standing at a finish line. You go, oh, okay, well, that's done. Um, yeah well, well, usually next. i'm knackered i'm gonna to go to bed <laughs> yeah 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 well, for, uh, like, okay well now you've got to get back in the motel we've got to return that in an hour and then we've got to get in the hotel we've got a flight in six hours but you just like life goes on um what you've got to do these things for is to learn something about yourself um or it's got to have a greater value um and so i'd go for it if there was an intrinsic reason what will that give to me? Because sticking another certificate on a wall, it's not going to add anything to my life. Um, so there, are, there's other things that I want to do. There are um, the the world record that I've already done. I think that I learned a lot from it, and I saw a lot of ways that I would improve the time that I did on that, and I would improve myself. I think that the lessons that I can learn and then bring them back to everybody as well. So our whole strategy for the, for that world record was basically to, um, to streamline the best performance out of 
somebody almost regardless of what they're doing. Like some of the principles that we use, the psychological interventions, the streamlining of, of a lifestyle, the use of time and organization, they're, if you want to be the best piano player in the world, if you want to be the best engineer in the world, if you want to be, I don't know, the best teacher, the best father, you can use all of these things to better yourself. A lot of it wasn't about being a great cyclist. And I like that. I feel, so we were talking before this podcast, um, just as we were catching up about another conversation, a blog that I was involved in a couple of weeks ago about turning 40, which happens this year. Um, for me, not for everybody, let's just put that out there. <laughs> Surprise everyone, you all had, we, we all had the pandemic and now you're all turning 40. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, for, uh, for some people they'll be loving that for some they'll be hating it yeah um, but um I kind of feel like yeah late 20s early 30s was exploring the world what's out there late 30s the world record became about discovering what's within me what am I capable of and then I feel like my 40s are more about what have I done that gives something back like what can I give to my community? What can I give to people who have their own dreams? What can I share with people? Um, and that becomes really important. I read, have you heard about Ikigai? It's a Japanese kind of philosophy. Okay, no, I haven't actually, no. It's their philosophy of basically Ikigai roughly translates as purpose. And um, you don't really need to read the book because on the back of it is this Venn diagram, which explains it all. It's four <laughs> circles. In one of them, it's um, it, the, it's find the thing that you're good at. And the, in the other three, so the thing you're good at, the thing you can get paid for, the thing you enjoy, and the thing that the world needs. When those four overlap, you've found your purpose. And I think in cycling, I 100% found the thing that I love. And through practice, became good at it. Um, okay, I'm kind of making money from it. I do make money from the speaking events and uh, from the sponsorship. But is it what the world needs? How do you use those experiences? And I always, I like to kind of compare that to learning guitar. Like if you became a great guitarist, but you just played it alone in your room, would it be fulfilling? Or would it be more like, does it serve a purpose when you teach somebody else your skills? Or if you're playing for an audience and they get that, like those feels from the music, like that's when it becomes something. And if I can use my experiences to better other people's lives, whether it's through entertainment or whether it's through the lessons that I learn or it's helping businesses to improve their systems or you know through cycling around the world and breaking a world record I've just built up this is kind of what I feel we are I kind of realized this when I was talking about 1040 all I am is the sum of my experiences for the last 40 years like mm. I think we sit with so many expectations on our shoulders of I'm supposed to act in this way. I'm supposed to be this iconic figure. I'm supposed to be able to cycle this fast or all of these things that we think we're supposed to do. All that we actually are is what we've done until this point. Um, and if I can use those things to then like help other people, I feel like, yeah. So going back to the round the world, probably not to be honest, because I don't think it would add to that, that um, offer that, is who I am that I can give to the world. Um, might, might add a bit of um, notoriety, but would it? I don't know. You know, sometimes when 
we define ourselves in comparison to other people, you end up needing the other person. I would never want to be the guy that beat Mark Beaumont's record because you're just a uh, comparison to Mark. Yeah. And Mark is, Mark's Mark and Lee is Lee. Yeah. And I like to think that they're both pretty nice guys. <laughs> they don't depend on I think each so. other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we all do different things in life. Some of them get more media attention than others. And uh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't define who you are. No. So I've got my own challenges. I think that we all start from different pages and different books. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of lessons still to learn, but also <laughs> to, to, to teach. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And yeah, it sounds like it's it's all just beginning. <laughs> no, isn't it sad, though, that you, we don't get that many years in the world. <laughs> you can't just be beginning now. Or are we always just beginning? I did also hear that, you know, today you are the youngest that you're ever going to be. So that's yeah. an important one to remember. Yeah. Depends. Yeah, it could be a bit depressing when you look at it, but. <laughs> <laughs> Today is the youngest day of your life. I think, yeah, that's positive for me. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a glass half full. Glass no, it's full. Yeah, it's all full. It's all full. All full. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Amazing. Um, so um, I have got some tandem trivia questions for you, I'm afraid. No, <laughs> yeah. this is like those Zoom calls that you remember a year ago when we were like, oh, okay, look, we're going to do a quiz and it'll be amazing. Yeah. So you're bringing back the quiz. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not too long. And you've answered the first one already, which would have been, have you ever ridden a tandem? But you, you gave the game away pretty quick there, so. <laughs> <laughs> um. But if you were to ride a tandem with anybody in the world, alive or dead, famous or not, who would you put on your tandem with you? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Who would I put on a tandem? It'd be somebody bonkers. I wouldn't. Yeah, uh, I guess it depends how. Like, I wouldn't go around the world with somebody. No, no, you don't need to take them around the world. This could be like a ride to the pub. You know, you don't need to. <laughs> I probably would. Yeah. Let's make a, let's make it a ride back from the pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even better. <laughs> Who would have put on there? Um, oh, that's so difficult. <laughs> I, the first person that came to mind I just, was Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> yeah, why not? Or or like I love the um, Jack Kerouac kind of characters from On the Road and that kind of like um, what, the beat poet era where it's all. <laughs> um like um fear and loathing in las vegas that kind of crazy stuff oh amazing yeah some really out there weird hippie kind of stuff oh man yeah i'm thinking kind of psychedelia <laughs> wild clothing a little bit kind of um oh what's that that film Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I'm imagining that, <laughs> but on a tandem. <laughs> yeah, why not? No, that's that's amazing. Yeah, it's a bit out there. I don't know why. Um, well, you've only you'll probably only be asked this question once, so yeah, you might as well go go big. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of kind of creating a carnival kind of vibe, being in your own wild world for a short for like for this trip. Like, make it a real trip. Yeah, crazy frocks, makeup wigs music <laughs> playing smoke different colored smoke everywhere 
and somebody crazy, Captain Jack Sparrow on the back. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. You on the front or the back? Oh, okay. Yeah, a bit <laughs> of a control freak, I think. Uh, um, or I did just think of another. I'd also just love a ride, like a, a sedentary ride with Stephen Fry picking oh. his mind for a bit. Wouldn't yeah. that be an interesting conversation? I reckon I could do seven years around the world with Stephen Fry on a tandem. I don't think oh, you'd run out yeah. of chat, would you? <laughs> I reckon Netflix would probably pay for that. Yeah, maybe I should look into that instead. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> that is a fascinating series. Yeah. Um, and I think that would probably be accompanied by some fine champagne. Um, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, maybe he's, he, I, he strikes me as more of a red wine kind of a guy. Like a really yeah, rich, I think so. Um, Deep and fruity. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so there you go. There's some good options. Would I go on the front or the back? Um, so when I when when that relationship through New Zealand finished, I was on the front. Um, I've been on a tandem since then um, with the bike club. At Christmas, we do a Christmas ride and um, we'll dress up and there's competition for the best dress. I didn't win, I've never won in the three years that I've done it. But this year we went on tandem and I was Santa on the back and my friend was Rudolph on the front. And that was probably the scariest experience of my <laughs> life. Like, my heart rate on a bike doesn't get particularly high, but on this day, it soared higher than it ever has done before, just looking at that bike and knowing how terrifying it was going to be with Steve on the front. And we wobbled out of his street. I don't know how we stayed on this bike. Like, you know, when you see a boat and it's on the waves and the mast looks like it's at 45 degrees, how can we ever stay up? <laughs> that was us like rocking from side to side, correcting the steering one way and then the other way and we're not pedaling right and then there's feet everywhere. And like... So that was when I was on the back. So what would I do? I guess it depends who I was with. I think with Stephen Fry, I'd be on the front and I'd keep it under control. I'd be like, yeah. okay, Stephen, this is this is fine. Let's enjoy that wine. There's no turbulence on this ride. If it was Jack Sparrow, let's go wherever his where the wind's blowing his yeah, sails. Yeah, that's a good point. He would take me on a much more wild adventure. Yeah, yeah. You could just be on. And the... you want turbulence. Yeah, you could just be on the back drinking rum. Yes. <laughs> Building a plank. <laughs> Amazing. If either Sorry, of these like. two eventualities come about, I, I want to be invited to watch. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be televised, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and then me and Steve often say we're joined by the frame on the tandem. Um, when you're um, probably more, you know, regarding like the, around the world and the touring, but is there any um, item, food item, kit item, anything like that that you're joined by the frame to that you can't do without on the bike, be it like a little luxury or something like that? Absolutely. Coffee. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to say that. Took, yeah, I took a, um, you know, those little mocha pots that you uh, put on the stove to make coffee. Yeah, yeah. I took one of those around the world. Took up a lot of space in a pannier. It's heavy, but... When you crank up your stove in the morning on the salt flats of Bolivia and you have a coffee on that and the sun comes up over the uh, salt, oh yeah, that's a moment. Yeah, no, I bet. 
coffee for breakfast around the world. Yeah, it was another way that I guess I saw the world. It was all those flavors. Coffee is not the same in every country. No. Um, and some of the ones where you think it's going to be good, it could be quite disappointing. Did. Like tar. I remember, yeah, it was in Bolivia. It was like tar. It was like mm. drinking a, a horrible, badly rolled cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember where your best coffee was? You know what? I really, I do remember really enjoying Turkish coffee. Yeah, I've heard Turkish yeah. coffee's good. So yeah, again, just full of sugar. <laughs> it always helps. Yeah, I've got a theme here. Yeah, <laughs> got a sweet tooth. Amazing. And then one one last question: um, Why should we ride around around the world on a tandem? <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> why should you ride around the world on a tandem i like the idea of riding around the world on a tandem but with only me on it and <laughs> as i ride along i just pick up strangers they jump on the back and they tell me their life story and then i drop them off at work or wherever or wherever they go and they stay with me for a few days and then they jump off and another person jumps on and they tell me and i learn a few things from them learn a bit of language they take me to some of the favorite places we get great food oh i love it there's actually somebody doing I can this see why you're going around the world on a tandem <laughs> i just don't know why you're taking speed oh get out he's Who okay. is it? <laughs> yeah no there's um there's a bloke he's he's amazing he's called um luke grenfell Shaw. Who is it? I don't know. yeah yeah he's um he's yeah. riding around the world on a tandem at the moment um oh no he's riding sorry bristol to beijing at the moment on a tandem and he's picking up people along the way um he's a, a cancer survivor um he's really young wow. still um and he is he is an amazing bloke he's so full of good spirit and fortitude and he's raising an amazing amount of cash for um various cancer charities as well so yeah he's um wow following him on social media is um is is cracking and yeah hopefully i'm going to get him on this podcast at some point too but yeah. brilliant he what? just picks people up and sticks them on the back of the tandem and off they go <laughs> what a great guy yeah. oh what's his name again i'll look him up and anyone who's listening should probably do yeah yeah i'm quite um happy to drop him in. yeah so he's called luke grenfell shaw and he's if you look under bristol to beijing he comes up pretty quick oh. on most social medias yeah okay i'm he's gonna really cool. him after this <laughs> he sounds great yeah the world needs more amazing people like that that's amazing that is incredible yeah no he's he's a really big inspiration um so yeah thank you so much for your time today lee it's it's been amazing it's been really good to chat and yeah as we've said before, hopefully we'll catch you on the bicycle sometime soon seeing as you're just up the road but in the meantime thanks so much oh, no, it's a pleasure. And yeah, like I said, I'm always here if you need, uh, need a hand or you just want to chat. Or yes, we must go out and ride a bike sometime soon. Mm -hmm.